as we go to the Word this morning, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And man, we're so close to being done with this Genesis study. We are in Genesis 48 this morning. Genesis 48. Over the last few months, I've thought about a lot about legacy and a lot about inheritance. My grandmother died last fall. And our family has gone through the process of settling her estate and all that involves. And uh, it involves a lot of stuff because my Nana loved stuff. She was a things person. And so we've spent a lot of time, really my uncle has taken the brunt of the time to sort through all of her stuff. And we, we found some things that are of real value. I've started wearing on my right hand one of, one of, a, ring, a ring we found in her things. Some real treasures were there, and other things will just be thrown away. And it's made me consider, what will, what will I leave behind? Will it be of any value? Will it be of any monetary value? Maybe more importantly, will, it, will what I leave behind be of any spiritual value? What kind of spiritual inheritance am I going to leave in the the communities where I've lived? What kind of spiritual inheritance will I leave my kids with? Well, this morning we're going to consider a man named Israel and some of his last actions and words as he laid on his deathbed thinking quite a lot about what he was leaving behind. And part of what we find in Genesis 48 is Functionally, he's writing his will. He's thinking about percentages and land allotments, and so there's, a, there's that aspect of things. But, but I think the deeper theme woven throughout this chapter is actually that Israel is seeking to leave behind an inheritance of faith with his kids and with his grandkids. An inheritance of trust in the covenant promises of God. What he gives to his children is not so much about money or land as it is about God's covenant promises to him and to his family. What he leaves behind is faith. Faith in the covenant promises of God. What do you... We're going to use the word covenant quite a lot this morning because it's an important biblical concept and there's ways in which the idea of covenant kind of unites all of Scripture. Throughout history, God has related to humanity, and you see this again and again in the Scriptures, God has related to humanity through covenants at, given at various times. God doesn't act unpredictably or spastically. He actually at various points throughout history has disclosed, this is who I am and this is how I'm going to act towards you. In the Garden of Eden, remember we, it's not explicitly a covenant, but there's a kind of covenant arrangement that's made, right? God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them the, the tree of life and he says, don't eat of the tree of death, right? He gives them a purpose and a calling there. And he says, this is life. This is the way you can live and, and live for eternity. And this is the way you can live and actually bring death upon yourself. And of course, they failed to keep that covenant. 
They ate of the tree of death. To Noah after the flood. God made covenant with Noah and with the whole world, right? And the rainbow is the sign of this covenant, promising never to flood the world in the same way again. And the sort of, in some ways, the most important and central covenant we've seen in Genesis is the covenant he made with Abraham, right? We've been following that since, since the, well, halfway through the, the book, right? This, it's the story of this covenant that God made with Abraham, with his son Isaac, and with Jacob, and this time the covenant was, was for salvation, right? He promised to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bring redemption to this dark world. And that's the covenant, that covenant promise that we see Jacob banking on this morning. A covenant is a solemn oath. It's an agreement Sometimes from one party, making promises to the other party. Sometimes between two parties. The covenant promises that that Jacob is banking on here are basically a a one-way promise in many ways. That God has come and he said to Abraham and to his family, I'm going to bless you and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Many centuries later, There's a new covenant made. We heard about that in our scripture reading this morning, right? God's covenant promise to bless the world through Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, and it's through him that all the nations are being blessed through his saving work. And the, the language that Jesus used at the Last Supper, right, was... This is the new covenant in my blood, right? And God is making, an, in some ways, a new arrangement in terms of how he's going to deal with humanity. And what's the promise of the new covenant, right? That because of Jesus' death, because of his body broken, because of his blood shed, we can be forgiven, all of us, Amen. reconciled to God and brought into the eternal life of God again. Simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And so my, my main idea this morning, the thing I, I want to kind of knit, to, the idea I want to knit together our, our time together this morning is this. The people of God, this is true in every age, the people of God live by faith in God's covenants. People of God live by faith in God's covenants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're trusting in the Abrahamic covenant. We're trusting in the new covenant, but there's real parallels here and there's connections. The covenant promises of God are the foundation of our lives as Christians. And what I want us to see is that actually that the greatest legacy we can leave or pass on to those around us or to those in our family, to our children, to our grandchildren, is to pass on faith in the covenant promises of God even as Israel does with his children, as we'll see in the passage this morning. Let's read our passage together, and then we'll pray. Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told Jacob, 
your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look to your word, that you would speak to us. That even in what can sometimes be obscure passages, that you would give us real life in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry, I forgot to grab a glass of water. 
Could someone grab me a cup of water? I'm sorry. Um, or else I'm going to start coughing all over the place, I think. The setting for our passage this morning is Israel's deathbed. Israel's deathbed. He's, he's about to die. Um, he's not immediately going to die because the next two chapters are filled with his talking, right? He's going to be interacting with his sons and with his, with his grandchildren. Next week in Genesis 49, we'll see him bless all 12 of his boys. But this week, he spends a whole chapter blessing two of his grandsons, the two sons of his favorite child, Rainbow, Rainbow Coat Boy, Joseph. Right, so Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons. And thank you so much, Dave. And as he blesses them, he demonstrates He's going to demonstrate to them what it looks like to live by faith in the covenant. Okay, so throughout this, this passage, he's, he's trusting in God. And he's going to look sort of on three horizons. So we'll, we'll use this kind of to organize our time together. He's looking to the past, to the present, and to the future. So in the past, he's remembering how God has made promises to him. In the present, he's celebrating how God has kept his promises to him. And in the, in the future horizon, he's looking forward to straining to see how God will keep his covenant promises to him in the future. Okay, Covenant promises given in the past, enjoyed in the present, anticipated in the future. So we'll start with the past. The people of God live by faith in God's covenants, first by remembering God's covenant promises. Verse 3. He gets Joseph and his boys before him, and he speaks to Joseph, right? Verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. This is a promise we've heard over and over and over and over again in Genesis. By now, maybe you're tired of hearing about the blessing of Abraham. You hear, yes, yeah, Abraham, he's going to be fruitful, he's going to multiply, land, offspring, yeah, 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 we've heard this before. Here it is again. You have to wonder if maybe Joseph thought the same thing, right? Yeah, Dad, I've heard before about how God came to you, right? The event he's speaking about is, is when Jacob first left his father's house. Jacob and Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him, right? Jacob had stolen his blessing. He's on the run, right? And it's the whole Jacob's ladder scene, right? He gets a vision of he from heaven, right? And God reiterates his promises to him. Why all the repetition? Repetition is for remembering. We repeat things because they're important and because we're forgetful. Why do you say I love you to your spouse on the way out the door every morning? Right? Is it because they need to hear it? The most important things need to be remembered and reiterated and spoken again and again. And one of the chief reasons, I think, for discouragement in the Christian life is a failure to remember what God has said and done in the past. It's easy to be short-sighted to allow the darkness of today 
to so dominate our thoughts and our emotions that we fail to remember what God has said and done in the past. God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. It had been a long time since that happened, many decades. But still Jacob remembers. Still he reiterates. Joseph had heard the story over and over again, but still Jacob tells him. He remembered again how God had come to him and given him a great promise of blessing again and again. And that's why we gather to worship on the Lord's Day every week. That's why we're here. It's because we're forgetful people. It's because we need help remembering the covenant promises of God. The Abrahamic covenant, as we've said, is fulfilled in Christ. So we're not gathering here primarily to remember what God promised Abraham. We're here to remember the covenant that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. It's, it's what Jesus has promised to us and to all the world that we, that we come to celebrate and to remember and to refresh ourselves in again and again and again. This is why the Lord gave his disciples the Lord's Supper. This is what we read earlier in, in Luke 22. Verse 19, he took bread, and he given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Right? This, is a, this is a covenant remembering meal, right? Every time we eat of it, when we gather together. Of course, in Christ we have a new covenant, better in many ways than the Abrahamic covenant. In Christ, God has promised us great blessing. In this life, right, in his body and in his blood, he promises us forgiveness, death to our old selves and to sin in Christ, and new life in his resurrection. And at Christ's return, what do we anticipate in terms of the blessing of this covenant, the resurrection of our bodies, the resurrection of the heavens and of the earth. In Christ's new covenant, everything is being made new through his broken and resurrected body, through his shed and sacrificial blood. And this is the good news that we proclaim again and again and again because we must never forget we proclaim it in words, in the reading and preaching of the scriptures, but also when we come to the Lord's table. There too, powerfully, again and again, we remember his body and blood. We remember his covenant. And even as Jacob is passing on these covenant promises to his, his grandchildren in reciting God's promise, so too we are called to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren and to all who would hear through the word, through the supper, here, God's promise is for you. Here is Jesus. Here is life from the grave. Here is Christ, his body given for you, his blood shed for you. Here is the covenant inheritance, if you would have it. And that's incidentally why I love that we have our kids in the worship service, right? 
Because as we remember these promises together, we remember them together, right, as a body. The people of God live by faith in God's covenants. First, by remembering God's covenant promises. But Jacob doesn't stop by looking at the past. He then stops and looks around him and basks in God's goodness in that present moment. We skip down to verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? This is rhetorical. He knows who they are. Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God, let me see your offspring also. What a sweet moment, right? As Jacob draws his grandchildren close to him, grateful to to be able to see these boys, Jacob sees very clearly the source of his blessing. What does he say? As he embraces them, God has let me see your offspring also. He recognizes the good giver where these good gifts have come from. Jacob's willingness to praise God in the present is instructive. We can't just live in the past and and in the future, remembering God's promises and hoping for future deliverance. Sometimes, when things are really bleak in the present, that's all we have to go on, remembering God is good because I've seen it in the past and I know he will be in the future, even when everything feels like it's falling apart in the present. Sometimes that's all we have to go on. But often, God has blessed us greatly in the present. And it is right and it's good to celebrate and to praise God for those blessings, to get Ephraim on one knee and Manasseh on the other and say, wow, praise God. I think this passage is particularly instructive for grandparents. Grandparents, you have a gift. You have been privileged to see your children's children. And some of you, your children's grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And none of this we should take for granted. It's all of grace. It's a great gift. We are not promised even tomorrow. Jacob is praising God here for his kids, and and I think it's, it's helpful for us to see that in light of the covenant blessing. With, with, the, with the Abrahamic covenant, there's a specific importance that God has promised, his, prom, his promises to Abraham to a family. It's not just to Abraham as an individual. Um, Jacob understands, as he's looking at his grandchildren, that these are, the, these are the ones who will carry on this covenant blessing into the next generation, eventually on the way to God's ultimate salvation, which Jacob can only imagine, but which ultimately has been manifest to us in Jesus Christ. People of God live by faith in God's covenants, remembering God's covenant promises, giving thanks for God's covenant faithfulness, finally anticipating God's covenant fulfillment, Think about Israel for a minute. Here is a man who in earthly terms has no future. He's about to die. 
But he's not hopeless about it. Because the covenant and blessings of God will carry on. He will not see the covenant fulfilled with his eyes in the lives of his children, nor will his grandchildren see it. Remember, one of the key promises Jacob is banking on is that that his family is going to be brought back to the promised land. Jacob's not going to die in the promised land, neither will his children or his grandchildren. In fact, he not only wouldn't he see that, he, in fact, sorry, Jacob couldn't see much, he was blind. But as the apostle says, we walk by faith and not by sight. This is definitional of faith, right? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In this way, Jacob is an excellent picture for us of the life of faith. Jacob, on his deathbed, blind as he was, was convinced that his family would be brought into the promised land. And that's evident in the fact that he spends most of this chapter sorting out who's going to get what in the promised land. So that's evident, first of all, in how he adopts his, his two grandchildren. Now this is, um, it's interesting what, what he does here. So if you go back to verse 5, this is what Jacob says to Joseph. He says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He says, they're, they're your kids, but I'm adopting them. Ephraim and Manasseh, your sons, Joseph, I'm adopting them, they're mine, in the same way as Reuben and Simeon are. Reuben and Simeon are two of Joseph's brothers. And so um, Jacob is, as it were, scooping these two grandchildren out of one generation and into the other. He's saying, I'm going to treat them and put them in the will as if they're my sons. Um. He does this for a couple of reasons. He mentions his wife, Rachel. Verse 7, As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Rachel was the, father of, was the mother of Joseph and of Benjamin. And it, it's, Jacob mentions her um, wistfully and longingly. You, you're left wondering if, if maybe Jacob would have wanted to have more children if she'd lived. But as it is, he has no chance of more children. And so he says, in a sense, here's how I'm going to get a couple of more boys, Joseph. I'm going to take two of yours. <laughs> and I'm going to put them in the will as my boys. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. He did this as a way of consolation, but also functionally what he does is he gives Joseph a double portion in the inheritance. If you think about it, there's 12 sons of Jacob, right? Usually we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That's the 12 sons. And once they were brought back to the promised land, the idea was, you know, slice up the promised land into 12 slices, right? And each tribe gets a slice of the promised land. But Jacob throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing, right? He says, actually, I want to give Joseph a double portion. I want to give him two slices. 
of a 13 slice pie. So he takes Joseph's boys and says, instead of giving my portion, one portion to Joseph, I'm going to give one portion to each of you. And so he favors Joseph again here in, uh, in giving a double portion in the land, a couple extra pieces of pie. And the thing to keep in mind here is that this is not land that Jacob owned. It is not a land he would live to see, nor would Joseph or Manasseh or Ephraim. They were all dead, long dead, when 440 years later the people of God finally came into the promised land and took possession of it. Israel was not living here by sight. He's living by faith. He had no evidence that there would ever be a land given to his children other than the word of God. And yet he took it as a simple fact that as God had promised, one day his descendants would occupy the promised land. That's why he's worrying about the inheritance being divvied up. And he even makes specific land grants. Down in verse 21, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. He says, you know that mountain slope? It could be translated Shechem. He might be referring to the, the, the place called Shechem. There's some debate. But um, whatever is actually meant by that phrase, he's, he's invoking a place name to Joseph that Joseph knows about, saying, you know that you know, nice hunting spot we used to go to? I want you to have that. Right? It's going to be almost half a millennia before his descendants are going to see it. He's living by faith, not by sight. Our perceived distance from Christ's return, from the final resurrection, from the inheritance, our inheritance, shouldn't make the realities of the inheritance any less real to us. You see this? Jacob's a long way from the promised land, and yet it's the one thing on his mind on his deathbed. Sometimes Jesus' return can feel like a long ways away. The new heavens and the new earth can seem almost like unreal categories. And yet if we're living by faith and not by sight, these things ought to be for us very real. If we're Christians, do we have a sense of the scope and size and reality of the heavenly inheritance which is laid up for us in Christ? Do we live our lives in light of it? If we do, it will put the treasures of this life in their proper perspective. Jacob was not infatuated with the riches of Egypt. He had been promised a land flowing with milk and honey, a heavenly country, and so have we. The day is coming soon when Christ has completed his work, sending the gospel to all the nations, that he will come again and the dead will be raised. We will be raised. Jacob will be raised. And with his resurrected eyes, he will see the new Jerusalem in a heavenly Canaan in the new heavens and the new earth. 
In that day, God will have made all things new. There will be no darkness or sin. There will be no death anymore. And the covenant people of God will in that day enjoy the presence of God, of the joy of his being, face to face. People of God live by faith in God's covenants, remembering God's covenant promises, giving thanks for God's covenant faithfulness, and anticipating God's covenant fulfillment. Before we finish, I want to think just briefly about the blessing that he offers to these two boys. So he adopts them, that's half of the ceremony, and then he blesses them. And he does a very strange thing. Right? The words of the blessing are very beautiful. Verse 15, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. It's a beautiful blessing. But as he prayed it, he did something strange and something that Joseph objected to. He crosses his hands. That as Joseph brings the boys to him, he brings Manasseh, the older boy. Joseph brings Manasseh on his left so that as he comes to Jacob, Jacob will have his right hand on Manasseh, the older, for the blessing, and his left hand on Ephraim, the younger. The idea was that there was power in the right hand, that the right hand was a hand of strength and of honor, and Joseph wanted his oldest son lined up with the honorable right hand for the blessing. <laughs> and Jacob pranks him, right? He just switches his hands, puts the right over Ephraim, and the left over Manasseh, the younger honored over the older. And this should call to mind what happened many years ago, right, in Jacob's youth, when Jacob, coming to get a blessing from his father, remember Jacob's the younger, deceived his father into giving him, his father was blind, deceived his father into giving him the, the blessing of the older brother, blessing of Esau. And so there's, there's a real resonance here, right, between these two passages. Now it's Jacob, in his old age, also blind, giving honor to the younger rather than the older, only this time it's not a mistake. This time it's Jacob's intention. And even over against Joseph's objections, right? He says, and presumably he actually says this before the blessing is given, like, could you switch your hands, Dad? I don't know, maybe you can't see, but Manasseh's on your right. I put him right there for you, right? Just the right hand over Manasseh. And what does Jacob say? Verse 19, I know, my son, I know. He, shall, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim first, and as Manasseh. The order is switched here. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, the younger before the older. So what does this mean? The younger rather than the older. This is too much of a pattern in scripture for us to ignore. Jacob above Esau. 
Joseph above his brothers, Ephraim above Manasseh. Later in scripture, we find David, the youngest of many boys, elevated to the position of king. In some ways, this principle is at work in the people of Israel themselves, right? Of all the families of the world, why pick this little shepherd family to be the instrument of God's blessing? Why this little nation rather than a great one? Why does God do this? Why does God delight in confounding our expectations for who should be considered great? I think the Apostle Paul speaks to this inclination in God in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. He says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is glorified. He receives the honor when he blesses and uses the lowly. If he exalts the great, the great boast in their greatness. And so time and time again, the Lord topples those expectations and exalts the humble. As Christ taught, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the humble that get the inheritance, the lesser, the lowly. Which perhaps should serve as an encouragement to us as we come to a close this morning. Who among us would count ourselves as among the great? Which of us is deserving of the grace of God and of eternal life? Who among us can presume upon the blessing of God because of something which is in us? None of us. We trust this morning, we can trust, that we can taste of God's blessing and of the goodness of his gospel because not because we are great, but because he is kind. Because his covenant is a gracious one. God is not hesitant to bless and to lift up the lowly. It's his delight. Let's pray. Father, as we live the rest of our lives and as we prepare even for our deaths, we ask that you would help us to live by faith in the covenant of God, that we would remember your past actions and deeds, that we would not grow tired of hearing the goodness of your promises to us in Jesus, that we would delight in the ways in which you have already shown yourself faithful in providing for us day by day, and that as we look ahead, we would live by faith, not merely by what we can see, Lord, but that we would hope in what we cannot yet see, in an eternal weight of glory which far surpasses anything we have even begun to imagine or to experience in this life. Help us, Father, to live by faith. We thank you, Lord, that we can have faith in you. And that we can have confidence that when we come to you in the name of Jesus, we, even in our humility and our lowliness, 
we are lifted up to be seated with you. Made your sons and daughters, not because we are great, but because you are kind. This is our assurance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's praise God as we uh, come to a close this morning. Let's stand together and we'll sing. Praise God from whom all blessings